Well, this morning we're in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 8 through 18. This is a word of the Lord to rebellious Judah and a beautiful description of how they could be saved from their rebellion. It is amazing how fully applicable ancient words from the Lord are to our day and age. It is an appeal made to Judah that is rejected by them. But it's also going to be an appeal to every one of your hearts this morning. And I pray that your heart will be tender towards the Lord. And when the Lord calls your heart and moves your heart, that you will not harden your heart against the Lord. Let's please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. Isaiah chapter 30 verses 8 through 18. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, don't see, to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right, speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel." Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and it breaks like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found." And with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in return and in, I'm sorry, in return and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you are unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift seeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. And the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right, a beautiful passage before us this morning. It begins in verse 8, that these things are commanded to Isaiah to be written down, to be written down for our sake, that we might not forget what was said at this time, that we might benefit now, thousands of years later, as to what the Lord said to Isaiah and the people of Judah in that day. And we will profit from these things today. But he begins addressing these people as a rebellious people. That's a word that we don't hear a lot these days. He doesn't say that Judah is a different people or a difficult people or a unique people or a self-expressive people. He says they are a rebellious people. So what makes a person rebellious? A rebellious person is a person that is rightfully under the authority of someone and refuses that authority and is going to break out from that authority and do whatever they want. That is a rebellious person. And we must understand that we are under the authority of God. 
God's will for human beings is not God's opinion to us, but it is God's command to us because he is the sovereign God over all the world. We all rest under the authority of God. Now, those of you that have lived under the authority of either a good parent or a good boss or something like that understand the benefits of good authority. Authority is not there to abuse you or to hurt you, but to guide you and to guard you. But these people are ignoring God's will. They insist on going their own way. They insist on doing their own thing. But as we see in this passage and many others, though king and country all together rebel against the Lord, it does not unseat his authority. The Lord continues in his authority regardless of what they say and do. But the prophet Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, calls them lying children, those who are unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. It is a nation and its people that have grown hard-hearted. They are full of excuses and they are deceived. And this is very, very important. We have to ask ourselves the question, are we willing to hear the instruction of the Lord? Or do we have a hard heart? Are we unwilling to hear the instructions of the Lord? There are many examples of this in the Bible, but one that I think is very important from the Old Testament related to Israel is in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And it's, and it's, it's an exchange between Saul, the first king of Israel, and Samuel, the prophet to the people at that point in time. Now, if you know much about Saul, Saul was a person whose heart was hard against the Lord and he kept on rebelling against the Lord and kept on disobeying the Lord. And the culminating experience is in 1 Samuel 15, where the Lord sends Saul as the king to go and destroy a fellow or a, a near nation, the nation of Amalek, because of its great ungodliness and its adversarial nature towards Israel. And this is to be God's punishment towards those people and towards their wickedness. And Saul is to be the instrument of God's judgment on that nation. And it is very clearly instructed to Saul that he should spare no one, especially the king, and especially not sparing the goodness of the spoil, bringing it all back so that the nation might profit from what they would gain from what was supposed to be an act of judgment from the Lord. Well, Saul goes and he attacks and he brings back the king for whatever reason. To goad this man on, brings back all the best of the spoil, all the fat cattle, all the good sheep, all the everything to enrich himself from what he was sent to do. Well, when it comes to Samuel visiting him, Samuel comes to check in on what has happened. And the first thing that Saul says is, I have performed the command of the Lord. Well, if you read the passage at all, the whole passage is about how he is not obeying the command of the Lord, clearly. But he says, I have obeyed the command of the Lord. He is unwilling to obey the command of the Lord. In whatever way, whatever's going on in his heart, whether he is deceived, just hard-hearted, or rolled together of all of these things, as he goes and gives his explanation, Samuel stops him mid-track and says, you have not obeyed the command of the Lord. And then he starts to get into this back and forth argument, saying, but I, but I have, I have obeyed the, the command of the Lord. And there's an there's a, a exclamation point behind the word stop in the scripture, where Samuel stops him dead in his tracks. He does not want to hear one more word of excuse from Saul for his unwillingness to obey the Lord. He says, you have not obeyed the Lord. And because of this long-held pattern of unwillingness in your heart, the Lord has removed the kingdom from you. That's the end. It was the last straw with Saul for the Lord. And he took the kingdom away from him. But what is more interesting, 
Well, what is equally interesting about the passage is that Samuel himself, who's supposed to be the prophet, is the prophet, but is not supposed to be the instrument of God's vengeance on these people, goes and borrows a sword and kills the king himself. What? Why? To obey, to fulfill the word of the Lord. The, the, the call and command of God must be fulfilled in this situation. In every godly person in the Old Testament, you will see a regular phrase repeated when you read about the life of Noah or you read about the life of Moses. And the phrase is this, that they did all that was required of them by the Lord. And that's an important phrase. It means that they heard the word of the Lord and they did what God asked them to do. And this is what it means to be willing to hear the Lord and to go all the way to the end of what God has called us to do. Unlike these people who were unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. The next part in verse 10 speaks about the type of prophets that these people want. They desire and they invite false words and false prophets. Don't tell us the truth, it says. Tell us what we want to hear. This is not a new thing. Like we all understand what this is like. Tell us what we want. Tell us illusions. We want to hear false things that appear to be true. We want you to lie to us so that we can feel better about ourselves. We're going to leave the old paths, as it says in verse 11, and turn to a new path. Why is that? Because we are tired of hearing about the Holy One of Israel. We're tired of hearing about God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's truth is hard to hear. Why is that? Why is it hard to hear God's truth? It's because we are sinners. Every one of us, we're born in sin and we are sinners. And it's hard to hear the truth about a holy God because it always offends our heart in some way. Because it always points us toward a need for God. And that apart from the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God, we are undone. But our world doesn't want to hear that kind of message. The world has never wanted to hear that kind of message. I want to ask you some questions that I think are important. Is it a good idea to push away people who tell you what you don't want to hear? Is it a good idea to push away people that are speaking the truth to you, but you don't want to hear it? Is it wise to only welcome the words of those who affirm you? As sinners, should we expect God to affirm us where we are? Did the prophets affirm the people in the Old Testament? Did Jesus affirm the masses that he spoke to? Did the apostles affirm the audiences that they preached to? And the answer to all these questions is no. They spoke to them God's word, which brought about conviction and offense in their life. And then they followed that with the mercy of God. Where this passage ends in verse 18, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, to, to show mercy to you. It's always the same message, but it begins with the offensive message of sin and that God is holy and that we are not. The word affirmation is used so often in our day and age, and we should be very leery of it because the Bible does not speak much of affirming. It does not affirm sinners. Every age is filled with such false voices. 
In our day and age, many of the so-called largest churches, not just in America, but around the world, are actually designed. By design, they cater to people. They do things that give people what they want to hear. They research and figure out how is it that we can do exactly what is here? How can we speak, speak smooth things? How can we tell people what they want to hear? And it should be no surprise that great crowds gather when people tell you what you want to hear. But this is not a new thing. To give them illusions, to affirm them in their rebellion against God. We are warned about this not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Paul writes of this in the very last verses that he writes in any of his letters, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He writes this to Timothy, warning him. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and following. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It's the same type of warning. If we go out of the church and into other areas of life, I think this becomes more clear. If you felt some great pain inside of you, and you went to the doctor's office, and you had a panel of tests run, and you came back, and things were worse inside of you than they were when the panel was run, and the doctor came in and said, everything looks fantastic. You're going to live to be 100. This is great news. Have a wonderful day. And you say, that can't be right. Like, Doc, something hurts inside of here. This is, this, this, uh, you're, you are going to just think positively about this. It's going to be great. I didn't see a thing wrong. Have a nice day. And smile. That would be malpractice. That would be medical malpractice if you are lying to someone about their true medical condition. If you come in for a parent-teacher conference because you know your child can't read at the level that they should read and something is wrong in the educational process and you need to work this out. And the teacher says, oh, don't worry about that. They don't need to read anymore. Like we have now had, we have new standards for education where reading is no longer important because they can watch it all on YouTube. And you say, that can't be right. Like that, I, that is not right. That is teaching malpractice because you're, you're telling someone something that they may want to hear that, that may sound good to them, but is factually and objectively wrong. And it's the same thing with spiritual things. I have to stand up here and do the best that I can from scripture to tell you the truth. And if I just tell you what you want to hear, I'm not helping your soul. And I'm endangering your soul for eternity. So all, all ministers of the Lord's word tell the people what they need to hear according to the scriptures, not what they want to hear. The love of God tells us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. Verse 11 is about leaving old paths. It's interesting that the way that they were in, they wanted to turn away from it, to go to a new path, because they were tired of hearing about the things that the prophets had been speaking to them for generation after generation. Again, it sounds just like today. But today, there's a powerful engine that pushes this message much harder than it did back then, and that is the engine of evolution. Evolution is, of course, the basic theory that the world and all that's in it has come about through random time and chance. And that it is a progression, a progression from chaos to order to greater order. 
The scriptures tell us a very different message that we have been created by God with intentional purpose. And we're gonna, I'm going to hold that for a moment. But if we believe in evolution and that we are moving forward from something regressive and something that is backward to something greater and something even more greater beyond that, then we should expect that this old-time religion is something long irrelevant to us and that something more relevant, something better is coming and that we ought to soon leave behind and hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. That enlightened modern man needs perhaps no religion at all. And if they do need a religion, they need a religion that is more relevant to who we are in this day and age. Or perhaps we can just save ourselves or perhaps even better, we just don't need any salvation at all because there's nothing actually broken. And that goes back to what I just said before. You're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. Everything's just fine. But you know there is something broken. And you search and search for a Savior, but you can't find a Savior because you're not your own Savior. And so you begin to search and to look, and the Lord brings to us His Word. And so what is so important about why this passage is still relevant to us today, why it still strikes a chord in your heart, is because the character of God has never changed. The scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Bible tells us that human beings were created by God in his own image. And that we in our nature, human beings in their nature, have never changed. That we are the same. The things that human beings struggled with during the time of Isaiah, pride and lying and theft and sexual immorality, they're all the exact same things that human beings struggle with today. And that's why the word of the Lord continues to be relevant. Whether we're driving a horse and buggy or driving in a Lexus or in a Toyota or a pickup truck or we're flying tomorrow, I don't know, whatever it may be, we still struggle with the things that are before us. And so these things are relevant and we must hear them. There is nothing new under the sun. We are not fundamentally changed. The person and truth of the Lord our God is just as relevant today as when Isaiah walked the earth. And so there are consequences of these things. If we choose to walk in this path of rebellion, unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, there will be consequences. Verse 12, therefore. Therefore, says the Lord, and he speaks about what will happen because of these things. In verse 13 and 14, we have two illustrations of iniquity. That the sin of the people will be like a wall. It's described as a high wall that is built with a flaw in it. And the flaw causes a breach. And the breach causes the wall to lean outward as if it's getting ready to fall. And it's going to suddenly break apart and fall down. And it's an image of sudden destruction of a society that it's now open to the, the breach of its enemies. They can come right in and overcome the city. And this is the weakness of what they have in their belief system. Verse 14 is about a, a vessel of pottery. It's like a, they're like a, a piece of pottery that is absolutely smashed. It's thrown down so hard and it's shattered into so many pieces that there's not a single fragment left that you can dip any water out or do anything with. It's just a, a series of pieces shattered everywhere. What Isaiah is speaking about here is the sudden destruction of the wicked and societal collapse. And this is what is coming for Judah. It's not going to be a slow progression at some point. It's going to be over. And their enemies are going to come in and take them over. And there's going to be a sudden societal collapse. 
Albert Moeller, if any of you listen to him, he's a, a prominent leader in the Southern Baptist Convention, talks about this often. He talks about the progression that we are on as a society and that it is impossible for us to continue down this progression in society and have it not end in societal collapse. You cannot keep destroying the Christian family. You cannot keep undermining trust. You cannot keep destroying the church and education and contracts having to do with the ability to function business. And then this is someone, this is one back all the way to William Wilberforce when he used to speak to England about the decline of man Manners. Manners simply show respect to other people. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And when no one has any respect for each other, we begin to pull apart at the seams. When there is a continuous unbroken rise in violence and theft and sexual wickedness and immoral national leaders, we cannot keep on without something, without the wall falling down or the pot being broken to pieces. And so it is a warning to Judah and it is a warning to us of decadence that comes with ungodliness. Well, verse 15 is the turning point to salvation. What do we do about these things? And these are beautiful, beautiful verses. Verses that are not what we expect. It's all the things that you can think of. About how are we going to reclaim this situation? How are we going to get back to what we need to do? In our hearts, it's usually take hold of something and, and we're going to go after it. We're going to have a rally and we're all going to just do this thing. But that is not what we see here. Verse 15, For thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. Returning sometimes can be re, uh, interpreted as repenting. It's the same concept. It's not where you were going. You're coming back to where you have left, going in a direction that you weren't going before. Remembering what C.S. Lewis says about progress. Progress is not just movement. It is movement in the right direction. And if you have been moving in the wrong direction, progress is actually turning around, returning to where you went wrong, and then going in the right direction. And so the beginning of the salvation of the people is returning. It is returning to the Lord. And then it is resting or trusting in God. That God is their salvation. The point that they have to remember is that they cannot save themselves. They are trusting in God to bring salvation to them. In quietness, in waiting or stillness and in trust, that will be their strength. We remember Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. It's a picture of a person just bustling and hustling and going all over the place till they have just lost sight of who God is and what he is doing. And it is so easy to do that in our day and age. That we go, 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 go until we have forgotten who God is. And the necessity of being quiet before him and trusting in him. That through contemplation of Jesus Christ and faith in his salvation, you will be strengthened in the inner person of your soul that you might make progress. This is the way of salvation. I want you to turn with me back a few pages to Isaiah chapter 26 to another beautiful verse that says the same thing. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3. 
I'm going to encourage you to memorize this verse. Maria and I were talking about this one yesterday. We're going we're to memorize this one this week because it is so important. If we're going to set our mind in quietness and trust upon the Lord, memorization of scripture is one of the important aspects of that. And this is a beautiful verse to memorize, which says basically the same thing. Isaiah 26, 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. What a beautiful, beautiful passage. You keep him in perfect peace. The Lord gives peace and by his peace he protects the heart of those who fix their minds upon him those who trust in him forever i think it's good and important to contrast belief or not contrast to see the progression between belief and trust belief is the first step Belief is when you acknowledge something is true and from the heart you say, yes, this is genuine. But there's something beyond that when you trust something. When you trust it, you definitely believe it, but you give yourself to it fully. That's what it means to trust. And we're called here to trust in the Lord forever. That we are so set in our mind and our belief upon the Lord that we are entrusting ourselves to God. We are entrusting our future. We're entrusting our health. We're entrusting our children, our spouse, our career. We are entrusting everything that we have to God our Father because we are, our mind is stayed on Him. And God gives us the rest and the peace that we need when we entrust ourselves to him. One of the ways to not forget this promise is to memorize this promise. To be able to roll it over in your mind when anxieties come in and you struggle with the things that are tearing at the peace of your life. And you need to remember the words of the Lord. It's important to have them hidden in your heart. That you might be reminded to trust the Lord fully to stay your mind on his person and his promises. The idea of fixing our mind on the Lord regularly is similar to the analogies in scripture of walking with the Lord or abiding with the Lord, that we are continuing on with the Lord day after day. We keep on trusting him. We don't just believe him at some point in the past, but we keep on believing him. We keep on trusting him. And the Lord guards our heart with peace. We trust forever, for God is an everlasting rock. Turn over one page to Isaiah 28, 16. We have another beautiful verse related to this. The rock, God is an everlasting rock. Verse 16, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. This passage is quoted three times in the New Testament. The everlasting rock upon which we set our trust is the Lord our God. It is Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. All this resting, all this trusting, all this quiet, peaceful waiting in the face of a rebellious and collapsing world directly relates to our belief in the providence of God. We can rest and fully be at peace with the Lord when we earnestly do believe that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. 
Those who believe that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, we believe that God is good to us, and he is kind, and he is merciful, and he is gracious. And we may plan our ways, but we believe in the providence of God and that he directs our steps. He directs our steps towards our protection, toward our direction, toward our provision. And lastly, the last verse of what we read this morning in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. May you quiet your heart before the Lord. May you stay your mind on him this week. In trusting in him and confessing your sins, may you find hope in Christ. May he renew your heart and give you the peace that he promises in this passage. Blessed are you who wait for the rest and the salvation of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your blessed word. I pray that we would be warned and instructed this morning. Lord, that we would turn away from things that just affirm us where we are when we know that we're not where we should be. Lord, I pray help us to see your merciful hand outstretched to us. And I pray, God, that we would be a people who come to your word every day prayerfully and that we set our mind on the things of the Lord and in setting our minds upon those things that you guard our hearts in peace. Lord Jesus, we love you this morning. I pray specifically for any person here today who has never trusted you as Savior, who has never believed in you in the first time, that their heart, which is at war within themselves, that today they might find the peace of Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.